Now, I contemplated preaching on the flood this evening, but (laughs) we'll go on with Romans 8. Um, The first 12 verses of Romans 8. Delightful passage, wonderful passage. We'll read the first 11 rather than 12 verses. May the Lord bless the reading and the exposition of His Word. Romans, the 8th chapter, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Well, this great eighth chapter of the book of Romans... And if we were to give a title to the entirety of the 8th chapter, we might call it the uh, chapter of life in the Spirit. That would be a good title. I suppose another title that would be most fitting would be the chapter of the certainty of faith. I, I rather like that better. The relationship between the role of the Holy Spirit and the certainty of faith are so inseparable that either title would be a good descriptor. But certainly the English Bibles that title this section as the ESV has, Life in the Spirit, are right. The editors of the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament, they also have used the same title and I don't think I can improve upon it. For indeed, the theme of the passage is life in the Holy Spirit. It is an exciting thing to come to a section that stresses life in the Spirit and a chapter that stresses that life in relation to the assurance of faith also, I'm sure you will agree, is an exciting thing. Don't you agree? This morning when Pastor McDonald was uh, reading right before prayer from the end of the 8th chapter of Romans, you noticed that, didn't you, right before the pastoral prayer? That he gave us the assurance from the 8th chapter of the book of Romans I was noticing one of our small young children in the congregation whose lips were in sync with him all the way through the passage. 
What an encouragement that should be to us. Well, we come to this passage tonight, and the first thing we see is that those who are justified are being sanctified. Those who are justified are being sanctified. Now, let's look at these first two verses again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, verse 1 speaks of our justification. We are not condemned, but we are accepted through the righteousness of Christ. Verse 2 speaks of our sanctification, our growth in grace, or what it calls life by the Spirit. So in verse 1 we have justification. In verse 2 he begins to speak of our sanctification, our growth in grace. Justification, as you know, is an act. It is unrepeatable. It is a judicial acceptance before God based upon the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Sanctification is a process that will take place for the remainder of our lives until we Christians go to heaven. Justification means that we are set free from the curse of the law. We are accepted in the imputed righteousness of Christ. And I find it very very interesting that the Apostle Paul begins with justification in verse 1, moves to sanctification in verse 2, and that these things are distinguished but inseparable. Justification and sanctification are distinguishable, clearly distinguishable, but never should be severed. The reason that they should never be severed is because Christ cannot be Savior and not also Lord. There is no Christian who is justified but is not being sanctified. Every believer in Jesus Christ has been accepted in the righteousness of Christ through his blood and merit. But that Christian once accepted is being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is not possible to have Christ as Savior, justification, and not also as Lord over your ongoing life. That's why it's very interesting in the catechism that we recited tonight about the offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. The important thing to recognize there among other things, is that you cannot receive a divided Christ. You cannot say, I will receive Christ as my priest, but I will not receive him as my king. Everyone who has received Christ as priest has also received him as prophet and king, because you cannot receive a divided Christ. When you believe in Christ, you believe in the whole Christ, the only Christ that there is, who is prophet, priest, and king. Christ then cannot be Savior and not also Lord. We are justified by grace through faith alone, but that faith is not alone. As Calvin puts it in the Institutes, 3.11.6, As Christ cannot be divided, so also these two blessings which we receive together in Him are also inseparable. And so I, I believe as we open this chapter that the Apostle Paul wants us to see that justification and sanctification are distinguishable, but also can never be severed. I think that's why he says what he does in the way in which he does. Now, the second thing we see as we move along in the chapter is that those who are living by the Spirit 
seek conformity to the law of God. Those who are living by the Spirit seek conformity to the law of God. Let's read verses 2 through 4. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now these are dense verses. What is he saying? Well, we are set free to love the law. That's the whole point of verse 2, really. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That means the law of the Spirit of life... The powerful, effectual means of the Spirit work, the Spirit's work in our lives is contrasted with the law that once in its demands condemned and therefore controlled us. To put it another way, outside of Christ, when you do not know Him, the law of God is your enemy. It is against you. When you have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ... The law at that point is gospelized. Your heart is now open so that that law can be written upon your heart. So God through Christ has met the law's demands. That's the point of verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Now verse 3 is a magnificent verse. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Here we have the incarnation of our Lord. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now he does not say in sinful flesh, And there are some well-known commentators that make a huge mistake on this verse by assuming that that's what Paul means. But John Murray is right when he says that Paul the Apostle in this verse comes to the very verge of peril. He does not say that Christ came in sinful flesh, certainly not, but in the likeness after the similitude of sinful flesh. And when he came, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but we have the word condemnation in verse 1, and we have the word condemnation in verse 3. We are not condemned, verse 1 tells us, and we are not condemned, according to verse 3, because of the work of Jesus Christ in his incarnation and his shedding of his blood on the cross. You are not condemned... And by the way, we have in verse 4 the verbal form of the noun condemn in verse 1. It's the same term. You are not condemned because Christ has met the righteous requirements of the law in his active and passive obedience. What the law could not do, what could the law not do? The law could not provide freedom. What the law could not do, Christ has done he has granted freedom. The wonder of it is this. What the law could not do, Christ has achieved for us. This God did for us through his son that he did not spare, but gave up 
on the cross. And so Paul says, now we are free to seek to obey the law of God with no fear of condemnation. Why? Because Christ bore the condemning wrath of Almighty God that the law demanded. Now that has been completely satisfied and you may now pursue a love for the law of God and obedience to the law of God and you may now do that with no fear of condemnation whatsoever because we have a new walk. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, that's our manner of life, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now in your life there is a law-loving direction. Fish are free in water. And now whatever the Lord has done to us in regeneration and conversion makes us free to live in the environment of the Word of God and the law of God. In this new walk, we love God and neighbor as the law demanded. Now we have a real, true beginning to do what we could not do before. We could not love God's law. We could not love God. We could not love our neighbor. We could not follow the law. We could not obey the law. But now because condemnation has been removed and your heart has been changed, because of what Christ has done for us, you can actually begin to walk in newness of life, which means that you actually love the law of the Lord. And it's your delight day and night. Which leads us to the third thing we see in the section here. Those who live by the Spirit do not live according to the flesh. Now we find that in verses 5 through 9, and I think it would be helpful if we looked at the verses again. Verses 5 through 9. Those who live by the Spirit do not live according to the flesh. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Now, if we don't walk according to the flesh, it's important that we understand what the flesh means. I know the rain is hard to listen through, but wake up. And let's, uh, let's, let's try and, and really listen. What does Paul mean by the flesh? The popular translation of the word flesh is sinful nature. But that is totally inadequate. It's inadequate, but it also is misleading. It can give the impression that there's a part of the sinner that is sinful, but there is another part of the sinner that is not sinful. And it simply does not cover what the Apostle Paul means by the word flesh. What does he mean by flesh? I hope that you won't mind if I make a suggestion to some of you who have my commentary on Galatians. If you will go to the section on Galatians 5.16 and read what I have written about the flesh, I will actually say that's one thing I'm pleased with in the commentary. And I think it could be a help to you. So let me briefly unpack, as well as I am able, what flesh means. 
Flesh can mean a variety of things in Paul, but when used ethically, it means the present sphere of existence determined by sin and death. It means man's total environment apart from Christ. Flesh means an environment, the sphere of existence that is determined by this present evil age. Paul means by flesh that the sinner participates in an entire age that has now become obsolete by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It is a different world order than the one Jesus brought by his incarnation and resurrection. Flesh is all that the sinner is and all that the sinner trusts in outside of Christ to save him. So when we are saved, it has cosmic dimensions. It means that our salvation is nothing less than participating in the new order inaugurated by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Being in the flesh is the opposite and is contrasted by Paul with being in the spirit. The eschatological spirit who raised Jesus from the dead has intruded into the present evil age. But those who do not know Christ still live and exist in the environment of this present evil age. That's not true of us believers. We function in this present evil age, but our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we belong. And that's why it is better to translate the word sarx, flesh, just with the word flesh. Because it is so rich and full of meaning that to do otherwise, I think, would be misleading. So the apostle says, the unbeliever walks, that is, the manner of life is according to the flesh. The unbeliever walks according to the flesh, but the believer does not walk according to the flesh. He says that in verses 4, 8, and 9. The flesh then, as we look through the text, I'll just mention these verses to you. According to verses 5 and 6, the flesh is a mindset. The unbeliever sets his mind on the flesh. He talks about it. He dwells on it. The direction of his life is away from the glory of God. Do you want to know why you cannot connect Ethically speaking, with the unbeliever, your mind is set upon Christ. His mind is set upon the things of this earth, the flesh. So it is a mindset. According to verse 6, the flesh is the opposite of life and peace. According to verse 7, the flesh is hostile to God. According to verse 7 also, the flesh, the one who is in the flesh cannot, does not, and cannot submit to the law of God. Hupatasso, put in subjection. He cannot put his mind in subjection to the law of God. According to verses 7 and 8, the man who is in the flesh does not and cannot please God. Actually, I think we should read those verses again, 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot It's not merely a matter of it does not, it is not able, it cannot. Those in the flesh cannot please God. And according to verse 9, the one who is in the flesh does not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. It does not, he does not belong to Christ. Now, when I was growing up in the church, sometimes this passage was read as if Paul was speaking of believers here. 
nothing could be farther from the truth. That is to say, when he describes the flesh, he is not suggesting believers walking in a fleshly way. He's talking about unbelievers here. He is contra- nothing could be more clear than that the Apostle Paul is saying the way of the Spirit and the way of the flesh are totally contrary to one another. The one is the way of life and peace. The other is the way of death. He's talking about the unbeliever who is in the flesh. But the opposite is true of all that we said for the believer. We also have a mindset, but it's not of the flesh, it's the spirit. We have life and peace. We are not hostile to God, but are his friends. We do submit to God's law. At least we have a beginning. We do seek to please God. We do have the ability now to begin to serve the Lord. And we have the indwelling spirit and belong to Christ. So walking in the spirit and walking in the flesh are totally contrary to one another. The believer then in his life is the opposite of all of these things that have been described of the fleshly nature. And Paul points in that trajectory, to that trajectory of the believer and unbeliever and he says these are opposite trajectories. They are antithetical to one another. That you cannot be both at once. These things cannot be true of the same person. <clears throat> In a recent sermon, I brought up again Dr. Van Til's illustration of the buzzsaw. The buzzsaw, whether a buzzsaw will cut in the right direction, depends upon its setting and the man who is operating it. Dr. Van Til puts it this way, reason is a keen tool but it functions wrongly in fallen man's set of sinful human personality. So an unbelieving person will certainly assume the position of judge with respect to the credibility and evidences of revelation, while a believer's reason has already been changed in its set by regeneration and cannot then be the judge. Again, Dr. Ventil rightly says, the absolute ethical antithesis in which the natural man stands to God implies that he knows nothing truly as he ought to know it. It means, therefore, that the natural man is not only basically mistaken in his notions about religion and God, but is as basically mistaken in his notions about the atoms and the laws of gravitation. From this ultimate point of view, the natural man knows nothing Truly. Now, what Dr. Van Til is saying is right out of Paul the Apostle. Dr. Van Til is not saying that there can't be great unbelieving scientists who understand atomic theory. He's not suggesting that there are not great scientists who can work with the, the laws of gravitation. He's saying, in terms of a holistic worldview, the unbeliever can know nothing rightly. Because all of these things must be seen in their relationship to God and to his world. So the man who is in the spirit seeks to please God, says verse 8. And his life is one of life and peace, according to verse 6. Again, it is trajectory. Pleasing the Lord is now our goal. And even children are called to obey their parents in the Lord because it pleases him in Ephesians chapter 6. And that's what it means to be Christ-like. By the way, did you notice the interchange in verse 9? This is just a passing remark. 
uh, between Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ. It says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So what is called the Spirit of God, and the same verse is called the Spirit of Christ, which is a strong affirmation of the full deity of Jesus Christ and the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. Now, walking in the Spirit also means, and this is the fourth thing, those who live by the Spirit will be raised through the Spirit on the last day. So we read in verses 10 and 11, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. What he says in verse 10 is that the body dies as a result of the fall. And here, of course, the word is soma, body, not sarks, flesh. He's talking about the human body. It dies because of the fall. But then he says, the father who raised his son will raise those in union with his son through the powerful operations of the Holy Spirit in verse 11. The Spirit is life imparting, powerfully operating already in your heart and in your life. So that there already is the guarantee of the resurrection at the last day. And again, note the essential doctrine of the Trinity in Paul's thinking. It is the Father who raises the Son through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. All of that found in verse 11. Note the inseparability of the work of Christ from the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit indwelling you then is the guarantee of your resurrection in the last day. More on this perhaps next time, but we may conclude with a tremendous word of comfort that when the believer's body is placed in the grave, the Lord has not forgotten that deteriorating body. He has redeemed the believer's soul and he has redeemed the believer's body through the shed blood of Christ. The entire person, body, and soul is in union with Jesus. Have you not noticed that when the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise. In Christ means union with Christ. That body in the grave is in union, this is so beautiful, in union with the Savior. And the Spirit, the bond of that union, guarantees that the Lord will raise us up in the last day. Jesus came from the grave in the power of the Spirit. The Father raised him, and so we will be raised. Jesus lives, and so shall I. Death thy sting is gone forever. He who deigned for me to die lives the bands of death to sever. He shall raise me from the dust. Jesus is my hope and trust. And God's people said, Amen. Well, you may have to listen to this in recording to have heard it all, but uh, there's our beginning of the exposition of the eighth chapter of the book of Romans.